Well, thank you for being here. Uh, let me just give you a very brief um, overview of where this paper came from, why I was interested in it. Many years ago, when I was a graduate student, I took a class in British rhetoric in the 19th century, and uh, I had to read an article about Keir Hardy, who was an English socialist and radical in the 19th century. And one of the footnotes mentioned that he toured America and stopped in Butte, Montana. So that inspired me uh, uh, to take a look at his, his trip to America. And uh, luckily, I was at Indiana University at the time, and in our library, we had his complete collection of his newspaper called Labor Leader. And in reading Labor Leader, I found every week uh, that he was on his tour, he had a commentary about America, uh, and he also had a traveling companion who was his uh, executive secretary, and he wrote a commentary. And so by looking at those commentaries from uh, 1895, I was able to kind of glean what happened on this trip to America. Uh, the missing piece of information, though, was what happened in Butte, what happened in places here. I could uh, track down some national newspapers, but I really, at the time, was in Indiana and never uh, was able to, to track down what was going on here. So the paper just kind of languished and went into the folder like so many things. And uh, this conference gave me a chance to look back and go to Butte, uh, go to the Butte newspapers and the archives in Helena and take a look. So that's kind of where this paper came from. It's a small story, but I think an interesting story. So this is Keir Hardy uh, wearing his trademark outfit. It was a critique of uh, British culture at the time. Uh, you can see he's wearing his uh, deerstalker hat and his cloth coat and that will be important in a couple of minutes, but this is how he appeared in most of the photographs. Uh, just a little background about him. He was born in Scotland in 1856. Uh, Hardy was born to an unmarried woman. Uh, he, she later married someone, so he was the stepchild of a father, stepfather who was probably an alcoholic and violent, and Keir Hardy never went to school. He was self-educated. He started working as a child, 10 years old or so. He was in the mines and uh, spent many years as a miner, but uh, no, no formal education. Worked in the mines about 16 years. Um, underground, he was in an accident when he was 12. I think that shaped a lot of his, his beliefs about mining. He became a labor leader uh, in his early 20s, organized strikes, and uh, became president of the union. He started a newspaper, The Miner, and, became, and that became his livelihood, essentially lectures and journalism. And after uh, he started this in his mid-20s, I think after 26, 27, uh, he never went into the mines again, and he reminded people of that. So the 16 years uh, had a big impact on him. Um, he was uh, not a member of the Liberal Party or the Conservative Party, the two dominant parties of, in Britain. He ran uh, as part of the Labor Party, which was this up-and-coming socialist group. He ran in 1888 for the House of Commons and lost, and he supported himself and his family primarily by lecturing and his newspaper, which had different names, but eventually became called Labor Leader. He ran again in uh, 1892, and he was elected first member of the Labor Party which still exists, still uh, one of the dominant uh, parties in Great Britain, first member. Uh, and uh, this is a campaign poster, and you can see some of the things that he stood for. 
he he was elected by about 400 votes. I think it was about 50. He had about 5,000 votes in uh, the place he was running, and his opponent had 4,500. But it was a great victory because Labor had tried several times to get someone elected. There was a great sensation when he took his seat in Parliament. Uh, the rumors were, the newspaper reports were that Kiharty was wearing his mining outfit, his miner's hat. He was filthy from mine dust, coal dust. Uh, untrue, he was wearing essentially from that first photograph. But he wasn't dressed in kind of the very formal wear that uh, Parliament was used to. He was wearing his cloth coat and his deerstalker hat. He lost his seat in 1895 um, after just the three years. He did later return to the House in 1900 and stayed there until his death in 1950. His legacy is he gave voice to the working class for the first time in a political sense. He was able to empower those people who were at the margins. This quote from uh, one scholar, Davies, this gives you a sense of just his magnitude. So a lot of scholarship on Hardy, um, and there's been a renaissance in his, in his people studying him for various reasons. I'll get to that later. Uh, just what did he favor? You can see from these uh, policies, he was really ahead of his time, and he was advocating uh, legislation for all of these things. He was not very successful. He probably wasn't a good politician, but he was able to always bring voice to this alternative view. Um, Peace and disarmament is kind of interesting because the last battle for his life was World War uh, I, keeping Britain out. And so there's a lot of resurgence of scholarship about his work in the anti-war movement. Keir Hardy, though, was essentially a public speaker. He called himself an agitator, but uh, public speaking was his route to power. He uh, uh, was, was, was a person who lectured everywhere he went and drew big crowds. As I said, he was uneducated, he taught himself to read, and essentially he developed a, a rhetorical style that fit what he felt was important. He didn't have this grand, eloquent, florid style that was uh, in vogue at that time. Uh, here's a quote from one scholar about his rhetorical style. It fit the working class audience. It was a missionary style. There was a messianic quality to the meetings. And so he could really get the crowd going, even though people said he had a soft, pleasing accent. But I assume he would just kind of develop his emotion and passion. The royal baby speech is really important in understanding when, why he came to the United States. And so he was elected in 1892. He didn't get a lot of attention, a lot of traction. But in 1894, the royal baby speech really changed things. Um, uh, I think it was in June, maybe, of 1894. I think the Duchess of Windsor had a baby, and this was a baby that would be an heir to the, to the throne. And so they were going to debate, not debate, they had a resolution to congratulate her on the birth of uh, this royal baby. Keir Hardy had uh, already tried to get resolutions of condolences for uh, 200, the families of 260 miners who were killed the previous week in Wales. 260 miners died and he was not allowed to bring that to the floor. He was told it was inappropriate. And so when this resolution came forth to honor the baby, Keir Hardy used that as a take, to take a stance on uh, the, the uh, Welsh miners who died. Um, 
So he lost that. There was a real controversy, uh, and he lost by about a thousand votes. So he accepted an invitation to come to Chicago to speak to a World uh, Socialist Conference in September, and um, he was in the United States from September until late November, so a long trip. I found this slide which gives a, a quote from the royal baby speech, and you can see uh, you know, the real negative point he was making. This child will be surrounded by sycophants and flatterers and will be taught to believe himself a superior creation. Uh, he was shouted down uh, regularly through the speech, and uh, for many years it was kind of the way he was defined. Uh, he, you know, he didn't dress appropriately, but this speech really turned the tide against him. So he came to the United States really out of power, and probably um, he talked about leaving politics, said he probably would not run for parliament again. I think he wasn't quite sure what he could do. He told reporters when he arrived in New York that he was just there to learn, and to go to meetings in his speeches and meetings, and he had lots of meetings. Uh, he both praised and criticized American socialists and labor leaders on various things, but he, he had an audience everywhere he went. People knew who he was. Uh, he spent a lot of time attacking wealth inequality, and he was very critical of just the church in general for not standing up for the poor. He thought that was uh, a real problem, that the, they didn't take a stance that he thought. He visited, of course, New York City, as I said, and these are just some of the stops along the way. Uh, Butte was one place he definitely wanted to get to. Of course, as a miner and someone who was involved in labor, he wanted to get to the uh, American West, but was very interested in Butte. He spent a full day with Eugene Debs, who was America's most famous socialist. Debs was in prison at the time, and Hardy was able to spend a full day talking to him. And Debs doesn't spend much in uh, talking about it. Uh, biographies of Debs just mention it, but they said they spent the full day talking. About a thousand people came to New York City in late November to see Hardy off. He spent three full days in Butte, from what I can see, and he presented two public lectures. Uh, the first at Miners Hall. I think this was a planned one. And then the second, he was, the second night he was there, there was a, a lecture at the Opera House. It's described as an impromptu lecture, even though it seemed like they had it was organized in some way. But Hardy and his friend Frank Smith uh, needed money. When they got to Butte, they had two dollars left, and there was supposed to be money wired to them from Chicago from socialists, and there was nothing there, so they were flat broke. And so this was used as a fundraiser in some way, and they claimed to have received. Uh, $75 from the take from that second lecture. So Hardy, as, as I mentioned, public speaking was his path to power. He enjoyed it. It was, well, I don't think he enjoyed it. He talked about it being tough and challenging, but it really was the way in which he gained power and, and attention. And this is just one of the many photos you find on the internet of Hardy with huge crowds around him. And so he was very accustomed to speaking, so it made sense that he was going to speak in Butte, but he spent two nights speaking there. Uh, first lecture, October 9th in Miners Hall. Uh, I like this quote from Butte, hundreds of earnest men, and from bursts of Indian yells from which time to time they burst out as points were made in the speeches, they enjoyed what was said, and a good many came to the conclusion they were socialists and did not know it, and he underlined and capitalized that in his column. 
Second lecture of the night, the next night was uh, Opera House. As I said, they were broke when they got to Butte. Uh, and I've got a description in a second. I'll read about this, about the bagpiper and the bonfire. I wanted to find out, I thought the missing point in this project was what did the Butte newspapers have to say about Hardy? And I was able to get over to the archives. I found eight newspapers were being printed in Butte in 1895 at this time. I thought I might get a lot of... Uh, response because the papers had different political agendas. I found uh, Hardy was mentioned in his visit in two of the eight newspapers that I could find. Uh, the Bystander on October 15th, uh, a week after the Opera House lecture, essentially just described the lecture and extensively quoted Hardy. Uh, not much critique, not much interpretation, just essentially a lot of quotations. Um, it presented his theme, the themes of his And the yeah the bystander let's say I must have skipped one yeah the semi weekly independent October 9th was an interview with Hardy and it was pr pr uh, printed the day in which he lectured and so it's kind of a preview of that night uh, he was called a prominent leader but again no critique and there was nothing after that and then again the view bystander was a week later. So what's the point of, of Hardy's visit? What kind of uh, significance might come from it? I had to think a lot about it because it's kind of a small type uh, case study. He was here just for three days. And so I guess what I would say is it's this eyewitness account of someone who's informed about the issues here that comes from an alternative perspective. And so he knows about mining, he knows about protests, he knows about labor, he knows about politics, but he comes from a different culture. And so his observations I think are just interesting to see what he would say coming to Butte for these three days. So when looking through his newspaper accounts and looking at his, the commentary from his colleague Frank Smith and looking at a few uh, other newspaper accounts, what I see in Hardy's visit here are three themes that I think are of value to people interested in Montana and Butte. He talked about the harmful effects of mining, he talked about discrimination, he talked about the importance of organized labor. And so at this point, I've got some quotes that I want to read directly from Hardy and his colleague to give you a flavor for that. So first of all, the harmful effects of mining. He talked about it in terms of economic injustice, the environmental degradation, and the issues of illness and health. So in terms of the harmful effects of mining, here's a quote from Hardy. He writes, near Butte is Marysville, where wages are miserably low, the strike of nearly six months duration having ended in the complete defeat of the men and the breakup of their union. A miner with whom I talked on the train informed me that the men were slaves. There is a pluck me store where at one time the men were compelled to deal under pain of dismissal. And he puts pluck me in quotation marks, so I guess it was a term used for the company store. He continues, there was an outcry and a law was passed which made it an offense to dismiss a workman for not dealing the company store. But the law is inoperative. The men are only allowed to earn enough money to pay their store account and thus wages are all but unknown. Just an example, and he has other examples like this as well, talking about the economic injustices. In terms of environmental degradation, he writes, the wealth of this region is incalculable. At Butte, not a blade of grass or a vestige of vegetation is to be seen. The sulfurous smoke from the smelting work destroys everything by, by polluting the atmosphere, 
and making life a misery in the homes of the people. Various efforts have been made to induce the millionaire mine owners to abate the nuisance, but the reply has always been that it's impossible. This only means that it doesn't suit the miners to mine owners to abate it. It came to our knowledge that one enterprising chemist had offered to take the smoke from the smelter, convey it two miles from the camp, and pay the owners of the smelters $50,000 a year. They declined the offer. Now, I'm not sure if that's accurate, but he says the owners would deal with it. Illness and health was a third way in which he talked about the harmful effects of mining. Hardy writes, the workers in the copper mines have had a hard time of it. They work nine and ten hours a day, seven days a week. The copperus in the water sometimes eats into their flesh and kills it like cancer. Fossy jaw is not uncommon. The strength of the copperus may be gauged from the fact that the steel ropes used in the shafts must be renewed every three months, sometimes breaking before the three months are up because they are eaten through by the active agent in the composition of copper. So these are probably not new insights, but they kind of reinforce the feeling that perception we have uh, viewed in the 1890s. Hardy talked about discrimination. In Pittsburgh, he was very disturbed by what he talked about the color line in the United States. And he mentions that you know, supposedly an African-American can get the same job as any person, but that's not true. And he gives an example of that in his Pittsburgh address. In terms of Native Americans, Hardy uh, visited different Native American encampments, as he called it. I'm not sure where he went. He did go to the Little Bighorn on his way as he left uh, Montana. But uh, he observed uh, uh, Indians in this area, and here's what he wrote. The American government reserves in different parts of the country tracts of land for the sole use of Indians. They keep them supplied with blankets and food and canvas in which they erect wigwams or teepees, conical and picturesque tents. They also polish buffalo horns, which they sell to the travelers, together with moccasins and other articles of Indian wear. The braves, six foot high, broad-shouldered, and straight as a pine, move about their wares stolid and reserved. They ask no one to buy and decline to haggle. They have their price. If you agree, good. If you don't, good. But his soul disdains the haggling, which Adam Smith tells us fixes prices in the market of the world. There is something intensely pathetic in the spectacle of these sons of the forest, these children of nature, dying out before the advance of the dollar-hunting white man. And he has a few other references about Native Americans. And finally, he's concerned about the unemployed. He called them the workless workers, the, the number of people who were economically disadvantaged because they had no jobs. And this is one description. One cause for bitterness which is growing in the West is the cruelty practiced against the tramp who is, after all, a one-time honest worker denied the right to earn his living and who drifts about the country in the vain hope of finding some hospitable corner in the land of the free where he may supply his needs. During our stay in view, a case was being tried in the courts, which will give you an idea of the official methods adopted towards the tramp. One night a few weeks back, word was sent to the police that there were two men who had the audacity to creep into one of the sheds belonging to the railway corporation and try to get sleep on the cheap. Money they had none, and the cheapest lodging house closed its doors against them. One of these so-called tramps had been a worker on the 
Railway and had dared to take part in a great strike last year. And if the corporation could not make him a slave, it did make him a tramp. The police arrested the two men and one attempted to escape. The policeman shot him down without a warning. He hit him twice in a vital part and when picked up, death had already claimed him. Don't tell my mother, he gasped, that I was arrested as a tramp. And so he sees the real hardship of economic uh, decline, uh, well, the, the discrimination against the workers and the tramps and the unemployed. And the third theme that comes from Hardy's observations really looks at the topic of organized labor and socialist politics. Hardy believed that there should be one political party, it should be the Socialist Party, and he believed that that's the only way labor could get ahead. And so talking about the success of labor, um, he writes this, the Butte Miners Union is one of the most perfect organizations in America. The foremen at the mines are all union men, and no miner needs seek work who is not a union man. This, together with the isolated position of the mining camp, has enabled the men to keep wages up despite the Great Depression, which is overtaking mining elsewhere. The mines produce gold, silver, and copper, and it is copper output which at present keeps them going. And then the next quote was about Marysville, about the desperate conditions and the slave labor there because their strike was not successful. He also talked about the, the greed and the collusion of the mine owners a number of times. Here's one quote. The two principal mine owners at Butte are Marcus Daly, an Irishman, and W.A. Clark, an Englishman, each of whom is worth something in the region of $50 million. The Rothschild Syndicate has a bond over their properties, and it is said that they will shortly be placed on the market. I take this to mean that the property has seen its best days and is now to be palmed off on a credulous public on the great reputation of its past riches. If the property changes hands, the miners' union will have its strength put to test. English syndicates don't believe in trade unions. They interfere too much with the freedom of contract. And so he thought the mine owners would do nothing to be helpful for the, the mine workers and the communities. Oh, go back then. And the last one, um, well, the second, the third one, Hardy was concerned about the Populist Party. And as Professor Rankin mentioned, 1896, we have William Jennings Bryan running for the president on this, this uh, silver platform, the bimetal platform. That's where Bryan gave his famous speech, you shall not crucify me on, on, a, on a cross of gold. Uh, Hardy was claimed to have been offered a bribe uh, by a politician to uh, come out and endorse bimetalism. He claimed the mayor of San Francisco offered him $100,000 because uh, if the English would, English socialists would endorse that, that might give the populace a chance. But he felt the populist party was going to take votes and support from the possible socialists because people thought that party would be helpful. Here's what he said about the populist party. If I was an American, I would not be a populist. Why? Because they are neither fish, fowl, fish, flesh, fowl, or good red herring. In the East, the populists claim to be socialists. In the Northwest, the populists claim to be a farmer's alliance. And in Colorado, Montana, and Nevada, the populists are a silver party. This weakens it and prevents them from becoming a force. And he talked about this when he was in Portland. He urged the Portland labor leaders to stick with the socialist party and not be duped by the, the, the populists. And, and Brian, I think, was the populist candidate and the Democratic candidate. 
uh, for the presidency in, in 1896. And the last thing would be, he did talk about growing support for socialism and socialist politics, this kind of optimism he felt. He writes, he wrote, America is ripe for a great movement and everyday events are forcing this pace. What shapes this movement will, and will, will depend upon the stupidity and blindness of the capitalists who are doing things that have cursed America. And unless they are careful, they will drive the American worker into open revolution. And that's all underlined. He says, the workless workers, it's a phrase he used occasionally, the workless workers are growing desperate. They're arming and drilling secretly, and it only requires another industrial army to take the field and another railroad strike to be forced by the injustice of the railroad kings to bring about such a revolution that will shake America as she has never been shaken before. And when that shake comes, it will be the war to the death against the oppressors of the people. And I jumped over one quote that I wanted to give you uh, about the, the Opera House lecture. Uh, and it's kind of an interesting uh, observation about Hardy. This was from his companion, Frank Smith. He says, we were driving back from an encampment and Hardy set up in the buggy and in tones that offered no grounds for refusal. He said, halt, do you hear that? They located the noise. A bagpiper named Duncan McGregor was entertaining local Scotties. Hardy tracked him down and invited him to play at the opera house. McGregor turned up at the hotel and with a score of comrades in line with the pipes, we advanced up Main Street to the opera house. Already the meeting had been announced by, the bon by a bonfire, a pile of wood four feet wide and six feet high built in the open street in front of the opera house. It was set on fire an hour before commencing time, and by the aid of the fire and the bagpipes, a great crowd had gotten together. The effect can be better imagined when expressed when on the top of this excitement, a procession arrived of miners, ribbons flying, bagpipes playing, and everybody smiling. For two and a half hours, the audience sat and laughed and cheered, and yes, they dropped a silent tear as the speakers drove home the truths of socialism. So I wanted to go back to that because it just shows you, I think, Hardy's ability to take advantage of the situation and use it to generate a large crowd. And I don't know how they must have taken donations, but that's the night in which they were able to get $75 from the people attending the Opera House lecture. So he left Butte, he said, with war, with yells and war hoops, which would have startled the equanimity of the Sioux chief. He asked the miners to continue their struggle and not be uh, taken in by the populist party. And a quote, he says, we asked them in the name of God and humanity to keep the lamps burning. And he, I think he was very taken by being in this mining community where he uh, felt closeness to the, to the crusade of miners. When he left America, these were kind of his, his last thoughts. He felt the freedom was being restricted. He felt the government and uh, uh, corporate interests were oppressing uh, the socialists. He felt that uh, they weren't able to get traction. Uh, he was fearful that the Socialist Party could never uh, have any strength because it was so fragmented and he was worried about uh, the lack of leadership. But he finally says he received an open-handed, generous hospitality everywhere, and in the long term he was optimistic the Socialists would prevail. So here's a, a poster from Hardy, a, a newspaper ad, uh, 1906. He was very much uh, uh, 
kind of outside the mainstream, as I said, not probably very effective in getting legislation passed, but he was able to change politics around. And so the last thing I would say about Hardy is there's lots and lots of research about him. I touched on very little about his life and his significance in England. And I, I did mention there's kind of a renaissance in uh, looking at Hardy, uh, fueled in part because a uh, new biography came out a few years ago that revealed that you know he had been uh, had an affair with Emmeline Pankhurst, the British suffragette. He had been very supportive of suffrage, but he kind of was there was kind of renewed interest in him. So uh, lots of scholarship about Hardy and uh, his commitment to different kinds of progressive issues. Thank you.